I'm Kristen Kelly, and this is Mom School. Hey guys, I am super excited to release this episode today. It is with Meredith Masony, who is the founder of the incredibly popular blog, YouTube, the TikTok, Instagram, That's Inappropriate. Meredith is a mother to three kids, and she just wrote a book called Ask Me What's for Dinner One More Time. I kid you not, I read this book in a couple of hours, and I was hysterically laughing in my bed alone while I was reading it. And then at the end, there's a part with Elmo, and I was sobbing and woke up for it so I could hug him. She'll make you laugh. She'll make you cry. And Meredith's been through a lot. She's very wise, and she has this uncanny ability to make you hysterically laugh while she's giving you these like deep life lessons. I read a quote that she did with moms.com. And this sums up why I love Meredith and a big part of our conversation. I think a lot of women believe they have to die themselves when they become mothers, that they have to be the doer of all things, as I call it. And that's not what I personally believe is best for yourself, your kids, or your spouse. So we talk about finding yourself as a woman and a mother, mommy martyrdom. We talk about not giving a fuck what anyone else thinks of you. And she rocks. She's awesome. Her book is incredible. Read it. It is such an awesome, funny, funny, funny book. And I don't read funny books. I read like self-help books, but go pick it up. And I hope you love our chat as much as I did. Here is Meredith Macy. I really have this fiery passion for making moms know that they're not alone because I felt so lonely in the early phases and stages of motherhood. And it pains me to know that there are other moms who are feeling that right now. And I know that we have to kind of go through that in order to, you know, understand things, but I wish somebody could have crawled in the closet with me and said, it's going to be okay. You lost your shit today with the kids and you yelled like a lunatic, but They were kind of asking for it and they weren't listening and they didn't do anything that they were supposed to be doing. And you're on your last straw. You know, I feel you. It's okay. And that's a normal reaction. And here's some chocolate. I always wanted to be a mom. I'm one of four. So I have much younger siblings. There's one who's a year older than me almost to the day. And then there's two much younger. I have a 12-year younger sister and 15-year younger brother. So I'll be 40 in a week, and they are just now 28 and 25, I think. So there was this massive spread. And so I felt like I did a lot of mothering when I was younger because my parents were never home. They worked all the time. And it was my job. I had the car seat in my car. I did pickups after school. I did drop-offs. I did bath times. And, you know, the crib was in my room when the kids were little. So I did a lot of mothering. This wasn't in the book. This is interesting. No, this wasn't in the book. But I did a lot of mothering and then swore up and down I'd never have kids because I kind of felt like I didn't want to do that. And then, of course, it quickly changes, right? Because you realize that these were my siblings. These were not my children. And it was what we had to do as a family, because like I said, my parents were always at work. So it was just, everybody pitched in. Then I got married and we got married young. I was 23 and we were both teachers. And by the time I hit 25, I was pregnant with our first. 
and assumed I knew everything because I had already been through this journey, so to speak, with much younger siblings. But you know nothing. Like nothing prepares you for giving birth to a baby who has colic and nothing soothes them. And you have no idea why they're screaming all the time because you just spend hours nursing because the only time they're quiet is when you're feeding them. And even that was a struggle for me. Breastfeeding was a struggle. It's like, you assume you have boobs, you have a baby. It's like, well, I have these boobs and they're making this milk and I'm supposed to put this milk into this baby, but yet it's not an easy thing to do. Breastfeeding is actually ridiculously difficult. So that took me a while to get for he and I to kind of figure out what that looked like. I don't think he actually ate from me for the first two weeks. We just couldn't make it work. We had to end up using some devices and things, those nipples that you you put over your nipples and blah, blah, blah. None of it was easy. None of it came like the idea of that motherly instinct that you're supposed to have. None of it came that way. That's so interesting that despite you having such a huge part in raising your siblings, you still will readily admit that this did not come naturally. It was a process. And now after reading your book and knowing how your kids are and how you are, it's like, it's all okay. Even if it doesn't come naturally, it's better than okay. We're all good. Yeah. There is no handbook, which is why I wrote, ask me what's for dinner one more time in the manner that I wrote it, because I wanted people to understand, like, I'm not here to give you advice, so to speak. I'm here to share stories Yeah, because there's so much advice given to parents and we don't necessarily want all of the advice that we're given, nor do we need it, or some of it is just so great. We just want to pass it along. But the advice side of parenting, at least as a writer, is kind of scary because I never want people to think that I'm going to tell them something and it's going to necessarily work for them. But what I can tell them is a story of an experience that I had, and then you can take whatever you want out of that. And I always preface that with, remember, I'm a dumpster fire of a person. Like I literally just had a friend say on a live the other day, she said, I thought I was a mess. And then I met Meredith and I went, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, like that's intense. Thanks. Yeah. And I'm doing a live with her on Thursday night and I can't wait to throw her under the bus and be like, you know how many people messaged me after that live you did talking about what a disaster I am as a human being? Disaster with the most hilarious, entertaining, relatable book. So if that's what a disaster looks like, it's absolutely fine with me. I feel like it must be so exhausting when you have to keep up some sort of an exterior facade to make it look like you've got just your ducks in a row all the time. Because the thing that gets me is it's like, you have to be really tired because I'm exhausted. So you must be really tired to try and keep everything in a row. Cause I don't even know where my ducks are most of the time. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, I don't know how people are doing it, but they do. And it's also another reason that I write the way that I write because I want people to know it's cool. It's going to be okay. They give you what to expect. I feel like I was handed what to expect when expecting it. Like one of my first OB visits, they just gave me the book. It was just like part of the prenatal package. It was like, here, this is the only thing you need to know about parenting. And little did I know that it actually, it had nothing to do with parenting. It only had to do with the changes that my body was going to go through for the next nine months. Yep. And then the rest of it, it was just like, here's that baby. 
y'all have fun. And it's like, wait, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. You're going to let me leave with this baby and you want me to put it in a car and then you want me to drive away from here. And then you want me to watch it without anybody watching me. And it's this just sheer panic. I hear you. And it is so refreshing. You say like, these people must be exhausted to keep up this facade. And when I finally let my walls down and I was like, I had awful postpartum depression. There were some days I didn't think I was going to make it through. The people who reached out to me first were those women who had the monogrammed outfits for each kid. Everyone's matching. They looked gorgeous on social media, right? But then they are breaking inside. So that is why stories like yours and books like yours, Ask Me What's For Dinner One More Time, which I lost the title, are so important because so many women are silently suffering and they look perfect, but it's a whole bunch of bullshit. There are women who, you know, are probably doing all right and that's good, but this is for those who are not. I just feel like the silent suffering, the martyrdom, The idea that we have to keep everything, all of the plates spinning and everything going all of the time. And then you better fucking bake something because Lord knows if you don't have them cookies going in the oven and then you better go and tell your child how they're the light of your life on social media. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just looked down. I'm probably not even supposed to say this. I just opened up the book plates that I was supposed to sign for this book that were supposed to be shipped back apparently yesterday. And she just emailed me and she's like, you ship those back and sign them, right? I'm like, did I get a package? She's like, you're joking, right? And I looked and I was like, oh man, how many are in here? And she's like, 2,500. And I went, oh my God. (laughs) And like all the air sucked out of my body. And I'm now looking at this and I said, well, I have a podcast to do. When I'm done, I'm going to be signing them book plates. Yeah, your hand's going to hurt, girl. I mean, like, but that's the thing is, Because life happens and a lot of times we feel that we're supposed to silently suffer because it's what our mothers did. It's what our grandmothers did. It's what everybody was told to do. And I don't agree with any of that. I don't agree with it at all. I think that talking about the way that we're feeling, sharing stories about what gets us through just life in general, whether it's the good times or the bad times or just the mundane times or shoot the pandemic times, because Mm -hmm. there's one for the books. I told my husband, I'm like, I have to write a whole book on just the pandemic because, oh, this has been exhausting. Mm -hmm. But I think if we continue to push and spread this message and my husband literally came in right after he fixed the audio And he goes, could you please ask her if she would do a video review of what she just said about your book? Because that was the best endorsement I've heard yet. And I really want to put it on Instagram. And he wrote me this note. Look at this. This is on a bill. He wrote me this note. He's like, oh my God, I love it. Because he knows that I won't ask people to endorse things. And he's like, how do you expect to sell any books if you refuse to ask people for help? And I'm real. That's why you won't do that is you are just. As real as they, it's true. You're real and it's fucking refreshing. It is so refreshing because it's rare. And I, I didn't think I was going to make it through the book because I didn't have enough time. And I sat there and I flew through this book. I can't remember the last time I finished a book in a day, but it's like a quick, snappy, bite-sized, funny. I was laughing out loud. My husband was like, what the hell is she doing up there? And I just felt better at the end of it. But I want to talk about something that you just said, the mommy martyrdom. In your book, it says, 
Having a terrible case of mommy martyrdom, things were a bit chaotic between 2010 and 2014. I was working full-time, running our home, and attempting to raise three kids, all while slowly resenting my husband more and more each day. Why was I resenting him? I was doing everything on my own. We both worked, but I was the one who did the homework, the drop-offs, and the pickups. I was the primary parent, cook, maid, laundress, and chauffeur. I thought being a good wife and mother meant that I had to do it all, be it all, and do it myself. I could not relate to this more. I had Eve Rodsky on who wrote the book Fair Play about dividing domestic responsibilities. And she was awesome. And the women who reached out to me after that episode, I mean, it was like messages were pouring in. This is sadly a universal commonality. A lot of people, a lot of families are experiencing this. Will you talk to me a bit about the mommy martyrdom and how you went from the woman who had to do it all, be it all, and do it all herself, how you went from that to a zero fucks to give mentality? Well, the resentment builds up. And I finally realized that he didn't know how resentful I was. He knew I was unhappy and he knew, cause you could just look at my face and know that I was not well and I was not in a good place. And then also the other things start to happen, right? Like you don't touch each other as much you know, I'm turning him away in bed. And it's like, I just don't want to be with you because I feel so resentful, you know? So I finally, it was the 4th of July and I unleashed on him and I called it the real fireworks of 4th of July. And I looked at him and I was like, I have nothing left to give. I have nothing left to offer. I'm starting this new business. I'm working. I'm taking care of the kids. I do everything for everyone. And yet you are sitting here looking at me clueless. Like you have no clue what I'm talking about. And he's like, well, how was I supposed to know? You never told me. And in that moment, that cry where you just, your whole body shakes and you were like, how did you not know that I was feeling this way? He goes, well, how am I supposed to know how you're feeling if you don't tell me? And then I realized I had become a martyr by myself. I did that because I didn't ask for help. I didn't tell him to pitch in. I didn't ask him to fold a load of laundry. I just took the basket and shrugged and left and would look at him and be like, I can't believe he's not coming over here to fold it. Like, why isn't he folding the laundry? Like, don't you want to fold the laundry? And he didn't because nobody wants to fold the laundry and nobody wants to do the dishes. But we started talking about it and he finally started to understand where I was coming from. And I really, really realized that he did not know that I was feeling that desperate and that upset. And so I said, okay, look, I need help. And these are the things that I'd like you to help with. And so we started just talking about ways that he could pitch in and then ways I could let him know what it is that I needed or what was going on with me. And we started to kind of check in with each other. And there was a really big shift. We'll be 17 years married October. So I'd say the last four years, he's been really, really great about making that change. But then two years ago, he started cooking. He started grocery shopping. Cause I realized too, I was like, wait a minute, this motherfucker eats. Why isn't he grocery shopping? Cause I was like, I grocery shop, I cook. And then I clean up. That's all the jobs with the food, all the food job. And I was like, I don't want to do all the food jobs anymore. You know, I did all the food jobs for 15 years. And nobody liked my cooking anyway. It's not like it was good. You know, it was second place at best. So he was like, you know, I'm going to take over and do the grocery shopping and the cooking because he had a pretty significant health scare. And so we changed the way that we eat. We're now vegan. 
And the only way that that was going to work, because if I was cooking, it was going to be with the fry daddy. So he was like, okay, I will take over. And he did. And it's made a huge difference in the fact that the amount of things that I can get done just while he's grocery shopping, I was like, oh man, this is a game changer, you know? Cause like I can be in clearing out emails. I could be taking the kids to in the normal realm of when there's practice to a practice. And I was just like, you know, this is a big help to me. I appreciate you. I thank you. And some people are like, well, cause people will message me and they'll say, you know, you're lucky. And it's like, well, yes, I'm lucky and blessed, but not because he cooks. I'm lucky and blessed because he's a kind soul and he loves me and I'm a lot to deal with, but he should cook and he should clean up and he should do other things because he's a person who makes a mess in a house. And there are five people who make a mess in this house. And so every person should pitch in. And I know that that's not the way, once again, that it was done, at least in my house. You know, my dad was not cooking anything. My dad was not grocery shopping for anything. If we're being honest, by the time I was 10, I was doing a lot of those things because like I said, you know, my parents, all they did was work. So by the time I was 10, I was babysitting everybody's kids, cooking meals and doing the laundry. So it just felt like the normal transition for me to do it in my own home. And it took me 10 years of resenting him to realize I shouldn't have to do all of these things on my own. He's a grown ass man. He can figure out how to do this. And it got really bad when I started traveling for work. And that's when it was like, okay, if I'm going to be gone for four days, I cannot come home and it looked like world war three. Like that's not cool. You know what I mean? Like when you leave and you come home, the house is still the house. I came back and I was like, what in the actual fuck happened here? And well, the kids were bad. I couldn't clean. The kids were bad. And I'm like, no, no, they're bad all the time. Not just right here. So yeah, that didn't fly either. And we worked on that, but he has made massive strides in meeting me in the middle, but it took me opening up and sharing my feelings because they don't know. People don't know unless you tell them they really and truly don't. And you say, which is something that Ivronsky said in this book, and we talked about in our conversation, is that it was a belief that I held that I had to do it all. Mm. So it's not this like man shaming, man hating mentality uh, where we're, you know, angry feminists screaming from the rooftop. Like that's not the narrative here. As a woman, just step into your power. And as a mother, realize that you don't need to do it all. You don't need to do it all. That doesn't make you a good mom. That kind of just makes you stupid because there are other people who should be doing this stuff, right? Well, and it makes you then get into that whole self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of it where you're like, well, you know, nobody can do anything without me. And it's like, no, they can. They can. You know, I looked at my oldest son. We went out yesterday or the day before we went to take the kids to the beach because that's our escape. We're only 20 minutes from the beach and it's been the best thing to be outside with them right now. So we have the beach relatively close and it's been the best because you can be outside. Nobody has to wear a mask and the ocean wears them out, you know? So I looked at my oldest son and I said, I need these five things done when I get home. And he had swept and mopped, done all of the dishes, folded a load of laundry, cleaned the bathrooms, and he had put away all the clutter on the countertops. He's 14. That man, that boy, that somewhere in between, who just showed me chin hairs, is going to be a husband at some point. And part of my job is letting him know that we need to get these things done. You are a part of this household. At some point, you will be a household with 
a spouse, you will not treat that spouse as though they are the only one who is competent to do things. It's my job. I'm raising boys and girls to be men and women. That's part of my job. I realized I didn't want them to see the dynamic that was at the beginning of our marriage and perpetuate that. And believe me, I have a list of man haters or people who think I'm a man hater a mile long and I get a lot of, you know, guff from them, but it has nothing to do with berating my husband or anything like that. It's just saying like the author of fair play, fair is fair. And there's nothing unfair about asking somebody to do their share. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it did. But (laughs) right. And now you say your husband cooks and your husband has kind of stepped into this role. And I'm sure if he's continuing to do it, that he likes it. Like, it's not a bad thing. It's great. He's doing something he's enjoying. No, he made a killer vegan fettuccine Alfredo Friday night. And you should have seen the look on his face when we all started eating it. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is on the list. You got to keep making this. And he even said on yesterday, he's like, should I make that again? And I'm like, well, not tonight. Cause we just had it. I was like, <laughs> next time you should make this again, because it was really, really good. And we all really enjoyed it, you know, and that's what life is about. Life is about Finding a problem, tackling it head on, figuring out what the solution is so that the next time you encounter this, you're better apt to deal with it. And that's with parenting, that's with marriage, that's with anything. Because I am by no means, I say it in the book, I'm a parenting expert with my three kids, not your kids, not the neighbor's kids, not the kids that I had as students in school. That's not where my expertise lies. It's with my own children. And every mom is a parenting expert to her own kids. So if I stay in my lane and I offer this up as stories and not the how-to, because I don't believe that there are true how-tos when it comes to parenting, because every kid is so different and every parent is so different and what works for one never works for the other. You have to just kind of take these out of stories. And, you know, I love to tell a story. Well, you're good at it. I told you I laughed through most of the book, but then there were some more serious parts. One being your health scare, your cancer scare. Will you talk about how that changed you? That's probably when you asked earlier, how did you get to zero fucks to give? And it was that. Because prior to that, I assumed there'd always be more time. Well, I'll do it later. I'll get to it you know, I don't need to do this right now. The kids are so little, I'll get to it later. Or I know I love to write, but there's always time to write something. Just now isn't a good time. And I was raised Catholic. And so I carry a lot of guilt and shame just for existing. And when I heard that there was this tumor in my esophagus, I immediately assumed God was punishing me for something I had done, whether it was not being the perfect mom or not being the perfect wife or whatever. I assumed, oh, I'm being punished. This is penance. And I realized that it could be over very quickly for me. You know, the doctor sat us down and he basically put his hands out to either side and he said, I can perform the surgery and wake you up and tell you you're going to hospice. I could perform the surgery and wake you up and tell you that you're going to eat from a bag for the rest of your life. I could perform the surgery and wake you up and tell you that you've got to have chemo and radiation, or I could perform the surgery and wake you up and tell you that you're going to be just fine. He said, I can't promise you anything because I can't do a biopsy. I can't open you up. 
the tumor has broken through your esophagus. And so if we touch it and it's cancer, it will spread to every part of your body. And so, you know, at this point, I'm just trying to figure out what do we do? We have three little kids. It was July, I think at the time. And I was like, well, I have to go back to work in August. Like I have school, like I'm a teacher. I said, can I do the surgery on Thanksgiving break? And he's like, I don't think you understand. You could be dead by Thanksgiving. He said, I will give you two weeks to get your affairs in order, which I laughed out loud because I was like, I don't have affairs. I have nothing. We literally have nothing. We're two teachers with three small kids. He's like, but then you need to have the surgery. We need to figure this out. When I sat down with that, all of that information, I realized selfishly, if I was dead, I wasn't sad because I was dead. The kids were going to have to figure out how to be motherless. My husband was going to have to figure out how to be wifeless. He was really the one who was going to need the help. So I was like, we better get him on a dating profile quickly because Lord, this man is not going to be able to do this on his own. Honestly, the thing I was sad about was that I didn't get to do the things I wanted to do with my life. And it sounds so selfish and I guess it is, but I don't care. It's honest. I wanted to be a comedian when I was younger. I wanted to be Barbara Walters and interview people. And I wanted to write books and I wanted to do all of these things. And, you know, I say it in the book, I married the right guy and I had these three beautiful children, but the other goals of who I was as a person, I didn't fulfill any of those. I allowed life to take its course and I didn't try and fulfill those dreams. And then when I was faced with my own mortality, I realized I was in fact sad that I didn't do those things that I had wanted to do. So I sat with that for a little while and I had the surgery in early August. I was so lucky that the tumor was not cancer. It did a number on my esophagus and I had to have three total surgeries to fix my insides. But I was so lucky at the way it worked out because I woke up I looked at my husband. I think I tried to tell him I loved him when he told me that it it wasn't cancer. He was like, it's not cancer. You're going to be okay. I think I said, I love you, but I don't remember being awake enough to like have a conversation, but I passed back out. And then when I woke up the next time I looked at him and I said, I have something I have to do. And he's like, well, what do you have to do? I'll do it for you. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm supposed to do something else. And he was like, this is cryptic. Like, what do you mean? And I was like, I don't know yet but I'm going to do something else. And then like, that was the end of the conversation. And then when I got home from the hospital a week later, I was like, I think I'll start a blog. I just have to start writing. I have to start getting something on paper. I think I need to start speaking to people. And he's like, about what? He's like, what are you going to talk about? And I was like, I don't really know yet. So I started the blog in October. My surgery was in August and I started the blog in October That was 2014. It'll be six years this October 4th. As awful and terrifying as I can imagine that experience was, that could happen to any of us. None of us is safe from getting horrible news tomorrow. What are we waiting for? That's the thing. Mothers, you say in the book, you are humans, not just wives and mothers. And so many of us deal with this identity loss in motherhood. And Uh that's not the way to live. The tumor was a gift, Obviously at the time I was very angry that I had to deal with this and go through with it. But very quickly, I realized how much of a gift I was given because I realized none of this petty shit matters. 
I have to just forge ahead and do the things that I want to do because it makes me happier. As a result, my husband is happier. My kids are happier. I can be a better wife and a better mom if I'm doing things that fulfill me. And I never realized, I always thought that being a better mom meant sacrifice. And a lot of times it does, but it also means allowing yourself to have the things that make you happy so that you can make others happy. Motherhood is not all about sacrifice. And I think that's where that martyrdom comes from. And people assume, I think with our first baby, we just kind of look at this baby and we're like, okay, well, my life is over and now I must live for you and only you. And you hold this baby and you're like, it's such an unconditional love, right? This feeling, having never met this person before, they hand you this baby and then you just, you melt. Like everything in you, just that feeling. But then that slowly or quickly can turn into this martyrdom. There's so much more I could talk to you about with the martyrdom, but I want to, you call it mom, mom's eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mom's anxiety. Yep. In the book. And I had horrendous, horrendous anxiety when I had little kids. And then it turned into anxiety about something else when she got into the toddler phase. And you also say that motherhood is just in, you know, it's endless phases right? Like one stage is over and the next one begins and you learn how to cope and deal, which is such a good point. And they didn't tell me this, you know, I read the books about pregnancy. I didn't need to read the books about pregnancy. My body was going to do it. And I didn't even know it was going to happen. I needed this kind of book. Mm, I was like, thank you. yes. And then he'll, he'll be mobile and then he'll start walking and then he'll start talking and then he'll start sprouting chin hairs. And like, this yeah. is the stuff I want to read about. This is the stuff that's good. Well, this is the stuff that I feel like your good friends who have kids a little bit older than you, you can rely on them to share their stories with you. And that's what I want to be is I want to be that good friend. So you can sit and have coffee with me, whether it's listening to the podcast or reading the book or joining a live. I want to be that friend who says, Hey, just wait. At some point, your daughter is going to walk up to you and say, there's something down here that I need you to look at. And then all of the blood will drain from your body and you will realize that you now have a young woman and it's like, you know, and then I of course spent like a week in my closet after that happened because I was concerned about how old I was, what that meant for me. Cause of course I was like, selfishly, this is about me. And my husband's like, this has nothing to do with you. And I'm like, but it does, but it does, you know? And so I think you need that friend to tell you these things because I don't think my mom ever talked to me about puberty. It happened and I was like, I need you to go to the store and get me things. And she was (laughs) like, okay. And that was the talk, which right, wrong, or indifferent as a product of 1980, I feel like a lot of us 80s babies have similar experiences with our parents, you know? And, you know, I couldn't do that. I had to, because I'm a storyteller. I had to sit my kids down and be like, okay, we're going to talk about penises and vaginas. This cracked me up. (laughs) You're talking about this in the book. It was like, I just, in that moment, I was imagining me having a sex talk with my little boy. And I was like, I'm going to do it like this woman did. That's. (laughs) (laughs) But I just feel like if you take all of that out, all of the stigma you can just kind of be a little bit ridiculous with it and you talk about it. And the best part is like half of it will be in like a Swedish accent. 
or I'll become Irish all of a sudden. And the kids are just like looking and it's like, don't worry. Everybody's got a penis and a vagina. It's fine. Oh, it's all good. You know? And they're like, what are you talking about? And it's like, just remember. But when you're like that with your kids, I believe that there's a higher chance that they'll be open with you. And like you said, you're in the car and was like, I like a girl or whatever he said. I I want her phone number. And a lot of sons don't say that to their mom. They don't talk about that stuff. And I want that openness. I want that relationship. I think my husband, not I think, I know my husband is a little jealous of the relationship that I have with my oldest because he comes to me and he tells me these things, but I always let him know, like, no matter what, it's 2 a.m. and you're where you're not supposed to be, call me. I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to hit you with my shoe when I get there but I need you to call me because it's better that I come and I get you from what's about to happen than being worried about what's going to happen when you see your father or I. So just call me, you know, or whatever it is, you know, talk to me about this girl or talk to me about whatever, or, you know, your friend's being a jerk, like talk to me about these things. Cause you know, maybe your friend isn't really being a jerk and you misconstrued something, or there was a communication thing or whatever, like talk to me. I want to have a good relationship with my kids because I want to be placed in a very nice retirement home. I do not want to go to Shady Pines, you know? I've been thinking about that a lot. (laughs) I don't know why. It's something like pandemic existential thinking. I'm like, where am I going to be? I got to be really good to them. So they put me somewhere nice. Yeah. You don't want to be, you know, like on the room next to the radiator and, there's no jello by the time they get down there. And then it's like, can I have some jello? No, we're all out of jello. Damn it. I should have been nicer to my kids. You know, I, (laughs) right now I feel like I've got a 33% chance of at least being in a good retirement home because one of them right now loves me. The other two are having a rough time because, you know, the pandemic has been hard on everybody, but how are you guys coping? How are you getting by? I think in the beginning, we were really just daily survival because of the fear of the unknown. We're like six months in now. So I feel like we're creating our own little routines inside of our bubble. They're mad at me. The two that are mad at me, all three are mad at me about school because I'm not letting them go back. We're doing nine weeks of virtual because I have a really strong belief that school is going to start on the 31st and by the following week, it will be shut down because of cases. So I don't want another disruption of learning. So I said, we're going to do nine weeks because I think when there's a mass influx of kids and teachers back together, we're going, it's bound to happen, knock on wood, and hopefully it's not bad and they'll be able to figure things out. But I think there'll be a disruption in learning. So I want you guys to have nine weeks of uninterrupted learning And then we'll see what it looks like. You know, maybe there'll be a vaccine by then or whatever, you know, but as a teacher, as a former teacher, you know, this better than anybody. Yeah. I just feel like, do I want to send them back? Yes. Can I send them back right now? No. And I also, and I'll say this honestly, I am hashtag blessed to work from home. So I have the ability to do that. I am not working outside the home. You know, I write my books, I do my podcasts, I film all my stuff here. It's not easy to get all of this done with the kids home and they don't want to be here, but we are able to do it. And so I feel like we're going to keep our kids out of that situation or out of becoming asymptomatic and continuing to spread. Because I do worry about the cafeteria workers and the bus drivers and the librarians and the teachers who are older and more susceptible to this. I don't want my kids to play a part in that 
fueling the fire, so to speak. So nobody's happy with me right now, but they know like, look, we've been doing this for six months. We can make nine more weeks. After that, we have to make another informed decision. Mm -hmm. That's what it boils down to. That's it. So we're living in a place now of sort of, I hate to say it, but of acceptance of this is where we are. I still have a lot of anxiety about it because there's no end date. There's no like sell by date, which I need as a very high anxiety person. I need an end date. I need to know that this is going to finish so we can start something else. I'm a list maker, but I have to be okay with it in the sense of living our daily lives because there's no other answers right now. So this week we're getting every kid's computer set back up in their room. We went to the schools and picked up their textbooks. We have the online learning schedule and the codes to get into the Zooms. So we're going to get everybody set up this week because this is quote unquote, my son said, well, there's only one week of summer vacation left. I'm like, you've been off for six months. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) There's only one week left is your response to me. You're making a decision for the greater good because that's not easy for mom right? That's no, I really thought that my husband was going to be like, let's roll the dice. And he wasn't. And so then I tried to persuade him a little bit. And he was like, look, I'm telling you, even if we send them back, there's no way school stays open for more than two weeks before there's a shutdown. He goes, look at anything that's happened since it's already happened. Yeah. He goes, look at Hillsborough County. Look at the schools in Georgia. Look at the schools in Utah already. They've already opened and shut down you know, technically we're still the epicenter. So I was like, I know you're right. I just feel bad for them, for their social development. I feel bad because we moved in the middle of a pandemic. So they don't even have a core group of friends and they want to go to school and meet kids. And it's like, you know, I'm sorry, but nine more weeks. That's the hard thing with school is no good choices were given to us. There wasn't one choice that was like, ah, clearly the winner. It's right here. You know, that wasn't a thing, but there wasn't a winning choice for the teachers. There wasn't a winning choice for the students. There wasn't a winning choice for the grandparents of the students. So it was across the board, a shitty situation for public schooling right now, but everybody has to kind of make their own decisions. I sat with a friend I was texting yesterday and he was like, we just don't know what we're going to do. Like, are we sending them back? He goes, I have to make the decision tomorrow. Tomorrow is the final day. And I was like, this is what we did. I understand where you're coming from, you know, because they're out in California. So I was like, I feel you in terms of it being a state where it's been hard hit. And he also has a kid on the spectrum. And online learning for some of these kids on the spectrum is just so difficult and keeping them focused and getting them to understand like this does matter. Like your education does matter and these grades matter. And so you do have to do this. I told him like, I feel you. I feel every ounce of this in my bones. But I said, count backwards from three and just shout out what you want to do. You and your wife at the same time, count backwards from three and just either say online or go to school. And then see, are you guys on the same page? Are you not? See what it is, but let your gut make this decision right now because there are no good choices. And he was like, I know, but there are no good choices. And I said, I know, but just, just shout it. What do you want to do? You know, is it send them or keep them, send them or keep them. But it's hard for everybody. I've had so many people email and message me online. What are you doing with your kids? What do you think I should do with my kids? And it's like, oh Lord, 
I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be different for everybody. Like you said, you are an expert in parenting your own kids, but in this situation, there is no good choice. Go with your gut. I cannot believe we've already been talking for an hour. I can keep going. I want to ask you, last question, what advice would you give to Meredith, 25 years old? What would you tell her? I would say buckle up, be determined. And I would say, give yourself grace because not many other people will. And I have found that through this journey, luckily, and I hope this is the case for most people, I don't know if it is or not, but in the beginning of this journey, nobody wanted to help. And I'm talking about social media. Nobody wanted to help me figure this out. Nobody wanted to help me it was all like a big secret, you know, like growing your social media following and doing all of these things as I was blogging. And this is career wise, right? If I was going to tell 24 year old Meredith something about family, it would be shit's about to get real. So hold on to your ninnies, but there's more good than bad. Career wise, I would tell her be determined because nothing is going to come easy and there are going to be so many no's and you're going to have to find a way to turn them into yeses. Because I had been told no and rejected so many times by publishers, by TV, by websites, by just trying to get published for anything. I was told no, 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 no. And so finding a way to turn the no into a yes, career-wise, is so important. Because now when I'm told no, I just say, I'll find another way. You might be no, but I'll find somebody who will say yes, and I will figure it out. Just because you don't like this idea doesn't mean somebody else isn't going to like this idea because it's a good idea. (laughs) Some of them are stinkers and those I can usually let go of. But if I'm holding on tight to one, I will find a way to turn it into a yes. You know, a lot of people, they don't want to help in the business, in the industry, whether it's podcasting or building a social media following. Everybody protects it like it's the secret sauce from the McDonald's Big Mac burger. And it's like, there is no secret sauce. It's hard work, it's hustle, it's determination. And for me, it's just being honest about who I am and where I am in this journey to try and help other moms feel less lonely and know that the feelings that they are having are valid and give yourself some grace with that because it's hard. Everything about adulting, especially right now, is hard. So yeah, that's what I'd say. I cannot thank you enough. I know you've got a lot to do, a lot of people that need you, and I really appreciate you talking with me. Where can we find you on social media and all that? Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, the TikTok, all that's inappropriate. I've added my name now so that people can realize that I also have a name that's not that's inappropriate. So my name is Meredith. So you can find me all of those places. And then, of course, I also have a podcast which you'll have to come on our podcast, the Take Your Lead podcast with Tiffany Jenkins. 